Good evening, folks. Welcome to radio station XITN, an Investigationis Theologicae Mundorum, with James Lagrange, Alastair Strange, Penthesilea Shaggymane, Dr. Venostrin, and others investigating the manuscript given to James in the Solomon Islands. In the definitions of religion we considered last episode, it was clear some were relevant to religious institutions. Others pertain to individuals, independent of any organized faith tradition with which they might be associated. Today we'll begin with a focus on institutions. The manuscript also wants to ensure we recognize the individual, how each of us, who at some point wrestles with how the world matches or fails to match our own system of values which evolve through our life experience. Individuals and institutions, right, Fred? Suppose we begin with the individual, the individual self, if you want, in the context of two institutional religious traditions, institutions where individual consciousness appears to occupy opposite ends of a spectrum of belief and practice, Islam and Buddhism, Buddhism in its more philosophical form. In Islam, Allah is said to be the singular God of reason and the God of worship and love. Both the existence of the universe itself and revelation in the Quran are regarded as proof of the existence of God. Allah is absolute power, transcendent and unknowable. Worship of Allah is the manner by which all things glorify God. Yet it is from the freely chosen submission of the self to Allah in worship that the Muslim acquires a sense of God's imminence. Allah is active in the world and knows the innermost workings of the individual soul. This is the basis for the will of the self following the will of Allah. As revelation, the Quran exists as a kind of science of God explaining the proper relation of God to his creatures and to his creation. So while above and beyond the world, Allah also exists within the very being of the individual. So when the Pakistan International Airlines PIA pilot announces from the cockpit, we're about to land in Lahore in 20 minutes if Allah wills it, that is meant and taken quite literally. 
Under this model, there is a sense in which the concept of Allah as God has virtually replaced the self. It is Allah acting within the individual when the individual is fully attuned to the reality of God. Attuned meaning that having submitted one's own will to Allah, the individual is therefore an agent of Allah's will. A devout Muslim believes this is how one must interpret the behavior of an individual's actions in pursuing jihad against perceived enemies of Islam. At the other end of the spectrum, Buddhist philosophy is absent any such concept of a singular existing God. Various schools within Buddhism may allow that divine entities can occupy different levels of being, but their role vis-a-vis -vis the individual is not that of a singular divine will. With its emergence out of Hindu history, Siddhartha Gautama was born into a Hindu family, there remained a tacit acknowledgement of a whole variety of supernatural beings. However, what lies at the heart of Buddhist philosophy is how individuals must take responsibility for improving themselves. The locus of moral and spiritual responsibility lies wholly within the individual. The concept of God as a separate agent in human history does not play a role in individual lives. And in that sense, Buddhism is a functional atheism. The title Buddha means the one who has awakened. What the awakened Buddha experienced was the absence of self as rapture, bliss, nirvana. The extinction of self is bliss. The term nirvana literally means the going out or extinguishing as of a flame. Nirvana is achieved when one's spiritual journey eliminates the cravings of the self, the fuel on which the flame of the self feeds. What we truly are is not self. On achieving nirvana, then the question of whether we survive death goes away, as the question, where does the flame go when it goes out, becomes unanswerable. What was a false picture of reality in the Buddha's mind was the Hindu doctrine of Atman in Sanskrit, Atta in Pali. That what we really are is not a mere physical body, but a permanent self that lives on after the body dies, an individual eternal soul in which we could, in principle, exist forever in a pure disembodied state. The doctrine is found in the Upanishads, developed in Vedantic philosophy, it was the milieu into which Siddhartha was born. For Hindus, enlightenment is the recognition that all things are united. All things are part of one ultimate reality. Thus, our individual eternal self is identical with ultimate reality, with Brahman. If we are truly enlightened, we realize Atman is Brahman. The term Brahman comes from a Sanskrit root, bri, meaning to grow or swell, to become great, initially used to describe personal gains from correct performance of Hindu rituals. In the Vedas, Brahman becomes identified with the power of the wind, breath, with the sun, a power expressed in the sound mantra, 
Um, Brahman, when capitalized, can also refer to the holy power of the universe itself, the pure, unchangeable, ultimate reality in which all things have their origin and end. Now we said for the Buddha, the belief that we consist of an eternal substrate, an unchangeable self, was at the heart of an incorrect picture of reality. Why? Well, the Buddha shared the Hindu concept of sansara, life understood as endless cycles of birth, decay, death, rebirth, and death again. But in the Buddha's perception, the reality of human life was dukkha, suffering, recognizing the presence of evil in the world. And this reality generated the necessity for compassion as the appropriate human response. An authentic life demanded a moral response to suffering. The picture the Buddha wants to get rid of is that if the conscious self is not a physical object, not a particular organ or part of the body, it is not a non-physical spiritual object either. The whole notion of selfhood as an object has to go. We're no better off thinking we are a spiritual object than a physical one. There is no permanently existing substrate that we are or that outlives our various actions in a succession of personal incarnations. To identify the self with an eternal substrate is to essentially remain unaffected by reality. But given a world of suffering, that is simply to insulate the individual from the world. So for the Hindu doctrine of Atman, the Buddha substituted a doctrine of Anatman in Sanskrit, Anatta in Pali, a doctrine of not-self, not-soul. What we are, the kind of being we are, is an impermanent self, but one capable of achieving a permanent state, nirvana, in which the impermanent self is extinguished. Buddha's doctrine of anatman denies the Hindu dualist view, the view that in addition to our material substance, there is another non-physical something else, a spiritual substance which represents what we truly are. But because that immortal, unchanging unity transcends each incarnation, in platonic fashion, we never truly die. Our eternal soul just passes on to another life, another existence. In that sense, what we are never really changes. We are permanently insulated from an unreal world. Perhaps it is natural that the Buddhist solution to the experience of life as dukkha, as suffering, appears self-contradictory in terms of personal benefits. The Buddhist does not seek some supernatural agent of salvation for oneself. The Buddhist answer to suffering is not salvation in which my suffering is made to magically cease. It is that suffering never belonged to me in the first place. The experience of suffering, disease, pain, these are understood as a play of impersonal forces. One could say the Buddhist begins with the self only to dismiss it because the goal of compassion, of morality, is the universe, a universe free from the self. The goal of Buddhist salvation is to fully participate in the universe, to become one with Dharma, 
the moral structure of the universe by getting rid of an eternal, unaffected self that only stands between one and the universe. In a sense, the Buddhist goal is to become the universe and its play of impersonal forces. Impersonal forces, yeah. That is forces of causation in a deterministic world. This self is superfluous. And that is why some Buddhists on the verge of achieving nirvana, selflessness, delay that transition and return to the world of sansara, return to existence's endless cycle of birth and decay out of compassion as a bodhisattva to serve as a guide for other suffering beings. Perhaps giving up the self solves the problem of having to translate how impersonal forces of the universe at the micro level relate to consciousness. The phenomena of the world consciousness sees, colors, smells, objects. Now we understand our conscious intentions and interactions with objects in the world are just certain impersonal forces of the universe among others. There is no longer any need to translate from molecular and subatomic states and forces to what it's like to be a conscious thinking being like us. We are those forces. Perhaps. Although how can we then be said to be anything distinguishable from our environment? The properties of phenomenal experience, the colors, smells, objects we see, are not identical with subatomic states. Anyway, one may want to ask, if there is no meaningful concept of the self, what need is there for a concept of God? Like the self, the concept of God stands between one and the world. And at the same time, if reality is a deterministic causal play of impersonal forces, what need is there for morality as well? Is morality now free, once having been stripped bare of its baggage of selfhood? Or does a Dharma universe of deterministic forces render morality pointless? We see a manuscript trying to move towards morality somehow existing in natural forces at play around us including forces at the micro level unseen to conscious experience, but influencing it nonetheless, causing conscious experience even, that on which conscious experience supervenes, forces consistent with the laws of physics, or perhaps one must say the changing laws of physics, where we engage possibilities of phenomena to see how those forces underlying reality present a way of talking about our moral being. But even reality has its own history. It reminds me of J.L. Austin, who regarded the human voice expressed through language as a vehicle of moral assessment. Religious utterances are one use of language, so our ability to give accounts of our actions explanations, justifications, elaborations, to mean what we say are paths to give morality its foundation. Moral discourse is not limited to what one's own belief finds acceptable. It's about how one is prepared to confront other grounds for belief, including disbelief, including even an elusive changing reality. So the moral dimension of holding one or another concept of God are always at stake, 
Our investigation seeks criteria for how moral awareness is required for any belief claims. Those criteria must establish our sense of belonging, feeling at home, not alien in the universe, and must find ways to share that universe. So what are religious sources of possible meaning? Our look at two vastly different institutional religious traditions raises these possibilities, that a concept of God, on the one hand, must embody sheer power and therefore is in competition with, even potentially destructive of human morality, or on the other hand, might just as easily be a concept not only not needed, but in fact not at all desired, because its presence interferes with an authentic spiritual life driven by a moral response to a world of suffering, where one is bound to dharma, not the need to please some individual powerful entity, some god metaphysically external to the moral agent. From a religious standpoint, the idea that nothing happens without divine purpose is comforting. But different institutional religions believe in different concepts of ultimate purpose. This suggests they cannot all be right. Their gods are at cross-purposes. A physicist engaged with quantum gravity, Carlo Rovelli, thinks setting the question of meaning in the universe as providing evidence leading to God is wrong. Finding purpose and meaning in one's own life are internal matters. Religious meaning is not independent of what culture provides. But Rovelli finds most of what people say about God as things he cannot relate to. And I agree. At bottom, whether a concept as God is something that could possibly exist does not help one to understand the world better. Yes, but Carlo admits he finds talking to trees meaningful. If the universe cannot provide evidence for holding some concept of God, holding such a concept is a matter of the inclination of probabilities. That is Bayesian probability. Instead of strict frequency, probability is a reasonable expectation representing your state of knowledge, a quantification of your personal belief. That puts the concept of God into the framework of Pascal's wager. It suggests a rational person should live as though God exists. Belief in God on the grounds that if God does not actually exist, one only loses certain mundane pleasures, whereas one stands to receive infinite gains, eternity in heaven, and avoid infinite losses, eternity in hell, if God's existence is real. Of course, Pascal thought it was fine for non-believers to imitate the worship behavior of true believers. It might lead them on a path to make them true believers. Poor fools. But it's another matter to make the meaningfulness of God itself the object of a bet. If the concept of God were not meaningful, the wager would have no meaning. One might take the argument for a forced wager on the assumption that both the existence and non-existence of God are impossible to prove by human reason, but the wager is pointless if the object of worship is an empty concept, inherently incoherent or meaningless. If the universe is fundamentally ambiguous regarding a meaningful concept of God, it is because the concept doesn't explain why there is this universe over and against some other universe. Any number of possible universes could exist. 
the fact that life happens to exist in this universe is a consequence of existing life forms finding the universe predictable, though not necessarily comprehensible. Perhaps we should be asking what are occasions for belief in God. One can be born into a family or a culture that practices such belief. For others, it's based on a particular experience, revelatory experience. There is still a cultural context to that experience. A very few might actually be convinced by arguments for the existence of some God, like scientists recently attracted to the idea of intelligent design responsible for a universe that supports life. The problem, if religion must support personal morality, is that one can imagine being told, if you don't have the right religion, you're not a good person. That is where political agendas enter. Both the atheists and the religious must answer the question of what to do in the face of evil in the world. When an atheist, after asking, why is the world fallen, broken, why is there evil, concludes that if God exists, God must therefore be either incompetent or malevolent, does that mean religion has failed to deal with reality? One could say the multiple objects of religious faith put the idea of an ultimate ground of being at odds with itself. But if religion simply fails to deal with reality, atheists can take no comfort. They may not even have the same reality to share. Asking what it's like to hold a concept of God invites consideration of the inconvenient fact that the concepts differ considerably across religions even within the same religious tradition, where there is acceptance of a shared object of belief. There are significant material or functional differences in the nature of that object. Can the same concept of God be author of both universal and selective redemption? Can the divine reality within me, who guides my will, be identical with an utterly transcendent reality beyond human comprehension? Can a benevolent creator destroy its creation? Can the natural order or Tao of the universe be both being and non-being without equivocation on being? Can there be meaningful belief in a concept that invites such internal contradictions? By institutional religion, we're referring to historical religious traditions that by and large are under the control of human authorities. This means human self-interest always plays an underlying role in the promulgation of religious doctrine and practice. What are criteria for institutional religion? Well, consider these. Institutional forms of religion are those faith traditions in which a Beliefs are organized under some systematic structure, generally expressed in formal doctrine or religious law. B, where religious leaders constitute a hierarchy of authority. And C, in which rituals and praxis are set forth in the form of rules or guides governing the behavior of lay followers of the tradition. Particular elements of ritual may involve ceremonies of worship, sacrifice, modes of honoring a deity or form of power superior to that of humans. 
there are several different levels at which forms of institutional religion may be found, roughly four. First, we have historical records from cultures sufficiently advanced to be using some form of written language and leaving physical remains sufficient for archeological and textual research. Then we have records and interactions with technologically less advanced cultures and tribal societies who make use of oral communication and that provide highly fragmented remains for anthropological research. A third form exists in the fluid religious expressions that arise from poetic or traditional legendary myths representing regional folk cultures, sometimes evolving into syncretistic religious bodies. And fourth, there are the institutional faith traditions we are familiar with today. Let's look at each form. Historically, institutional forms of religion in more technologically advanced societies appear to have emerged with the development of agriculture and stable cities beginning just before and during the Neolithic era some 10,000 to 14,000 years ago. Prior to this, existing remains are largely the subject of speculation. You wonder about possible ritual significance of such things as the ochre staining of skulls in certain burial practices, the use of cremation, the inclusion of shells and dolls and other objects in graves, the appearance of zoomorphic sculptures such as the Argnassian Lewin Mensch figurine. Moving forward from the 10th millennium BCE, one now finds some of the oldest human made sites that were possibly used for worship. Gobekli Tepe, Potbelly Hill in the Anatolia region of Turkey where massive T-shaped stone pillars were erected. In the same region, somewhat later, Katahoyuk, a proto-city development, was possibly a communal worship center where numerous clay figurines have been found. But probably it was the emergence of Sumerian cuneiform from around 3000 BC that provided the first codification of beliefs and the creation of historical religious records. By around 2780 BCE, one comes upon the oldest surviving pyramids by King Dozier's architect Imhotep and composition of the first of the pyramid texts inscribed on the sarcophagi and walls of the pyramids at Saqqara beginning at the end of the 5th dynasty and dating from around 2400 BCE. The earliest versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh date from around 2100 BCE the oldest Hindu Vedas, the Rig Veda, after 1700 to 1500 BCE. Early forms of institutional religion are replete with ambiguities and historical perplexities. For example, in the ancient religions of Mesopotamia and Egypt, early images of a great mother were associated with fertility and productivity in an emerging agriculture. Was there a religious organization associated with these images? To what extent are critical details obscured by the passage of history and relative unavailability of data? How should this concept of God or goddess be interpreted? Under several related names, the Great Mother appears as creator of humankind. 
in Atrahasis, the Akkadian flood myth dating from around 1700 BCE, Nintor creates humankind by mixing clay with the blood of a slain god. In a Sumerian myth, Ninma competes with Enki to form creatures out of clay that results in humankind. Do all great mother accounts represent a consistent set of divine attributes for remote individual that functions as an impersonal first cause, sometimes referred to as primitive monotheism? Well, if so, what should one then make of analogous female queen goddesses, Ishtar from Babylonia, Inanna from Sumeria, Isis from Egypt, who are all far more personal and relevant to the conditions of ordinary daily life with whom humans have direct interchange and ritual. How can one say all great mother accounts had the same thing in mind? Nevertheless, one can still point to things relatively consistent with the proposed three criteria of institutional religion. There appears a fairly coherent pantheon of anthropomorphic deities in ancient Sumer, Akkad, Assyria, and Babylonia after 3500 BCE that evolved into a distinct monarchical hierarchy. This hierarchy was mirrored in actual kingship and centers of political power. There coexisted an almost equally powerful priesthood that managed worship and mediated among deities the king's authority and people. There were cultic practices of public devotion in mud-brick temples formed as ziggurats. These rectangular step towers might symbolize a staircase for the passage of gods to descend from or send to the heavens. These structures could also function as giant altars where a cult statue would be dressed, washed, given daily banquets to provide its sustenance. Here, priests would enact rituals of purification or prayers for the expulsion of demons. Interestingly, Mesopotamian religious practices were conducted not only with astrology, but also with early science, with mathematics and astronomy, with codes of law, with medical practices, with calendar-based agriculture and city architecture. Looking at a second form, in technologically less advanced cultures and tribal societies, forms of institutional religious practice might display considerable complexity. This level does not describe a well-defined category. Rather, it serves more as a placeholder for indigenous religious phenomena that are historically unavailable or that have been interpreted exclusively in scholarship dominated by the terms of Western theology or not fully understood by the anthropologists who study them. Here one locates traditions of shamans or healers and various practices associated with them that can be articulated only by select members of the community who occupy special controlling roles in society. What one does not find here are institutions of learning that perpetuate beliefs or that formally encode doctrines to be passed on as written scripture or written histories. Beliefs and social practices are passed on through generations. They travel via oral traditions and memories. Aboriginal or indigenous family and tribal groups that have remained intact over several centuries are the potential members of 
this level of institutional religion. A third mode of religious organization arises from poetic or religious myths preserved in legends that form the basis of popular folk and syncretistic religions that exist within more technologically advanced cultures. Such highly fluid forms of institutional religion may be fragmented into various cults that trade on these myths. In the presence of social change or cultural heterogeneity, a fairly large degree of freedom becomes available for the interpretation of their meanings. This most fluid level of institutional religion includes difficult to categorize historical phenomena such as Greek and Roman popular religion. It can include naturally syncretistic religious practices deriving from continual population migrations, such as those found in the pre-Christian Solomon Islands and elsewhere in Oceania. It can include a merging of historical, indigenous, and folk religious practices from multiple sources, for example, from Catholicism, West Africa, and rural Spain, resulting in the syncretistic religions and cults of Santeria, Regla de Ocho, and Rastafarianism found in the Caribbean. Cultures that undergo change, whether forced or through natural circumstances such as population migrations, or from cultural interactions such as those during the Hellenistic period, are members of this form of institutional religion. This is religion that undergoes change as political realities change. In the fourth mode, we have contemporary examples of institutional religions that include traditions now increasingly familiar to us in our world of religious diversity. These are traditions with the priesthood, ministry, or monastic order, elaborate rituals of worship, documents of theological apologetics. The latter may be reflected in competing schools of thought or doctrine within traditions. So in this category are the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, most schools of Hindu and some schools of Buddhist thought, Shinto, Taoist, Confucian organizations, Sikh, Jain, Unitarian Universalists, Neo-Pagan, Rosicrucian, Theosophical, New Age, interreligious organizations of many colors, and that is not an exhaustive list. Well, this may be a good spot to pause, James, because you tell me that in our next episode, we're going to jump headfirst into the phenomena of individuals pondering their own sources of an ultimate ground of being and meaning independent of religious institutions. station XITM signing off the air.